Last week, we came to the end of our time in the book of Acts. And we ended with what I hope was a stirring call to service for God. We saw last week that the work of building the kingdom of God is not finished. We saw that you and I have a part to play. And we ended last week by singing together, Hear the Call of the Kingdom. On the chorus of that song, we all sang together, We will answer the call. We will follow, bringing hope to the world, filled with passion, filled with power to proclaim salvation in Jesus' name. We sang those words, and then we drank some tea and coffee, and we went home. And my guess is that our week didn't unfold much differently than previous weeks. Maybe some of us find that we had a bit more passion to proclaim on Monday, but did we still have it on Tuesday? And if we didn't, why was that? Why does the passion we have here on a Sunday morning seem to evaporate by Tuesday or Wednesday? There may be several reasons, but I'm going to suggest two. First of all, we live in a time when there seems to be great resistance to our message. In a cultural climate like ours, it can be very hard to maintain a passion for sharing the gospel. It's easy to become discouraged and just go quiet. Building the kingdom can seem like such hard work. The results can seem so meager. And so many of us end up like workmen who lay down their tools and go home to water the flowers. Discouragement is one reason we find it hard to answer the call of the kingdom. The second reason I'm going to mention is one that we probably don't want to hear. Maybe we have trouble giving ourselves to the work of God's kingdom because we simply have other priorities. We can set those priorities aside for an hour on Sunday morning, but over the course of a whole week, they do show themselves. And what comes to light is that actually we're all passionate people. It's just that the things we're passionate about don't happen to include building the kingdom of God. Or if God's kingdom is on our list of priorities, it's far down the list. We have our own kingdoms to worry about. And so our passion to proclaim Jesus gets swamped by our passion for other stuff. Discouragement and distraction by other things. Two reasons, perhaps, why we don't answer the call of the kingdom. And they're just as relevant for pastors and elders as for everyone else. So what are we going to do? Well, over the next few weeks, we're going to look at a part of God's word that can help us. We're going to look at some of God's people who find themselves in a situation quite similar to ours. And we're going to listen to God's word to those people. So turn with me to the book of Zechariah. It's the second to last book of the Old Testament. Not to be confused with Zephaniah. 
If you find Zephaniah, go on a few pages and you'll come to Zechariah. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 950. This is a book about building with confidence. But the people this book was first addressed to were not building with confidence. In fact, they weren't building at all. But they should have been. The background to the book of Zechariah is this. Way back near the beginning of the Old Testament, God promised a man called Abraham that he would give the land of Canaan to Abraham's descendants. That was a long time before that promise was fulfilled. First, Abraham's descendants ended up in slavery in Egypt. But God brought them out of Egypt. And eventually he brought them into Canaan, the promised land. Through the leadership of Joshua, God defeated the Canaanites, and Canaan became known as Israel. And under the kings of Israel, there was prosperity and blessing. But there was also disobedience. And over time, there was increasing and unrepented disobedience. And finally, God said, enough. Before the Israelites had gone into Canaan, God had warned them very clearly, if you disregard my commands, I will remove you from this promised land. And that's exactly what finally happened. After generations of patience with rebellious Israel, God said, enough. And they were carried away into exile. But even then, God didn't give up on them. He continued to speak to his people through prophets like Ezekiel. And eventually he brought them back from exile. The Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah describe how that happened. But it has to be said, the Israelites didn't return in great triumph. They didn't come back in large numbers. And those who did come back were pretty ragged. They straggled back rather than marching back in glory. But they came back with a job to do. They were to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple of God in Jerusalem. But it was tough work, especially since there weren't many of them. And in fact, they had other things on their minds, other concerns like building homes for themselves, making a living for themselves. The country they came back to was overgrown and neglected. The returning exiles ended up pretty disillusioned and distracted. The project God had given them was left to one side. One writer says God's people were in a maze of lethargy and spiritual uncertainty. That's the situation we're about to jump into. And into this situation, God sent two prophets. He raised up a man called Haggai and another called Zechariah. Haggai came along and he asked the people this question. Is it right for you to be living in well-kitted-out homes while God's temple is still in ruins? Haggai put the rebuilding project back on Israel's agenda. 
and then Zechariah took over. Look with me at Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. And I'll read down to verse 17. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Do not be like your ancestors, to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, this is what the Lord Almighty says, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But they would not listen or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? Then they repented and said, The Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. On the 24th day of the 11th month, the month of Shabbat in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, What are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, They are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. Then the angel of the Lord said, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt. And the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. This is God's Word. This passage brings three truths to us. God challenges, God sees, and God cares. First of all, in verses 1 to 6, God challenges. A people in need of renewal are called to repentance. The information that we're given in verse 1 allows us to date this pretty precisely. Zechariah is speaking in November or December 520 BC. 
So that's about 500 years before Jesus was born. The big world power at the time was Persia. Darius was the ruler of the Persians. And Judea, that's the part of Israel containing Jerusalem, Judea was still part of the Persian Empire. And in this context, God speaks through Zechariah to these discouraged and distracted people. And his first words to them are not words of comfort. God does not say, it's okay, don't worry. It's going to be fine. No, the message God gives Zechariah starts negatively. He says, verse 2, The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Verse 4, Do not be like your ancestors. He's talking about the generations of Israelites who lived before the exile. Their refusal to turn from their sin was what led to the exile. And it's not as if the exile had come out of the blue. Through earlier prophets, God had repeatedly told them, verse 4, turn from your evil ways and your evil practices. But God says, they would not listen or pay attention to me. That was the heart of their problem. They heard God's word, but they did not heed it. They didn't submit themselves to it. It didn't move them to obedience. They took it lightly. They called themselves God's people, but they didn't allow themselves to be ruled by God's word. But look what God asks the people in verse 5. Where are your ancestors now? And the prophets, do they live forever? But did not my words and my decrees, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, overtake your ancestors? In other words, God is saying, what is the one thing that endures? What's the one thing that remains constant through the ages? It's my word. Your ancestors are gone. And the prophets who spoke to them are gone. And look how God puts it. He says, his words and commands overtook their ancestors. That word is often used to describe battles where a person or an army pursues another and catches them. God is bringing a challenge to the current generation of his people. Don't be like your ancestors. Don't think that you can outrun my word. If you try to live like that, my word will overtake you. Along with all the consequences for disobeying my word. God sees in these people the roots of the same rebellion that ruined their ancestors. Yes, they're back from exile but they don't seem to be heeding the lessons of the exile. Now, there's no indication that they're following other gods at this point, or murdering or committing adultery. They are rebelling in a much more discreet way. They simply aren't doing the work God has given them to do. Their main concern is for their own little kingdoms. And their commitment to building those kingdoms 
is taking priority over their call to build God's kingdom. In their case, that meant building the city of Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem. Those God-given responsibilities have just been set to one side. And look at God's challenge to these people in verse 3. It comes in the midst of the warning. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Throughout the Bible, renewal begins with repentance. Turning back to God. Repentance is the way forward for spiritually lethargic and distracted people. And as God's people today, we have been brought back from our exile in slavery to sin. And as returned exiles, God has given us kingdom-building responsibilities. In our case, we're not called to build a bricks-and-mortar temple. We're to build a temple made of living stones. But we have the same tendency to lay aside our responsibility. And maybe the reason for that is that we're just more passionate about other things. Maybe it's because we've lost our confidence that it's actually worthwhile proclaiming Jesus. If we're parents, do we believe deep down that our children need a great education and great sports opportunities and a great job more than they need Jesus? I know we'd never say that, but do our attitudes and our behavior and choices reflect that? We've just heard God describe his word as the one thing that stays standing when everything else passes away. We've heard that God's word overtakes those who deny it or ignore it. So let's ask ourselves, do we need to repent of our lack of enthusiasm for God's word? Maybe even our serious ignorance of his word. Do we need to repent of loving TV and Facebook more than listening to the living word of the God of the universe? Men, do we need to repent of our tendency to be more like overgrown children than responsible men? Responsible single men? Responsible husbands, responsible fathers. Do we need to repent of our tendency to force our wives or girlfriends into being the spiritual leaders? In the last five years, how many times have any of us got down on our knees and pleaded with God about something? And if we have done that, has it been about his kingdom or about ours? Ladies, do any of you need to repent of loving the interior design of your home 
more than you love to deepen your knowledge of God? Are you more passionate about your personal appearance than about the deep truths of the faith? The evidence tells us the church isn't exactly taking England by storm these days. Some of that is down to the hard hearts of those outside the church. But surely at least some of it is down to the spiritual lethargy and distractedness of those inside the church. Very few of us are above reproach in this. Very few of us have nothing to repent of. The challenge of God's word is for us. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. Renewal begins with repentance. The pattern in scripture is that great works of God are preceded by repentance among God's people. Well, Zechariah's audience does repent. And their repentance actually is the foundation for the rest of the book. I suspect the book would have ended at verse 6 if there had been no repentance here. But there is. In the second half of verse 6, then they repented and said, the Lord Almighty has done to us what our ways and practices deserve, just as he determined to do. In other words, they're saying we are in this wasteland because of the sin and rebellion of our ancestors and because of our own lack of attention to God's commission, his call to rebuild in this wasteland. Then verse 7 gives us another date. Three months after Zechariah's first message, that one came in the eighth month, The second word from the Lord comes in the 11th month. The significance of that is that God's people have not just claimed to repent. They have demonstrated their repentance by picking up tools and getting back to work on the city and the temple. And God responds to this genuine repentance with a second word. But this one is quite different from the first. Verse 8 tells us it's a vision. During the night I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in a ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. I asked, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was talking with me answered, I will show you what they are. Then the man standing among the myrtle trees explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And they reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees. We have gone throughout the earth and found the whole world at rest and in peace. This is the first of a series of visions that go on to the end of chapter 6. In this first vision, it's dark, of course, because it's nighttime. But Zechariah can make out a man on a red horse. Now, red here does not mean bright red. Think of a dark brown horse. These are normal horses. This is a vision. It's not actually taking place. 
It's an insight into unseen spiritual realities. But it's a realistic vision. I don't believe there's any symbolism to these colors. Certainly none is mentioned. And the man on the horse is staying out of sight. He's concealed among the myrtle trees. And behind him in the shadows, Zechariah can make out more horses. Presumably they also have riders on them. But it's hard to see. What are these riders here for? Why are they hiding themselves? Are they waiting to ambush someone? In fact, Zechariah is told this is God's secret service. His military spies. Verse 10, they are the ones the Lord has sent to go throughout the earth. And now they're reporting back. Verse 11, we have gone throughout the earth and find the whole world at rest and in peace. Now part of the point here is to reassure God's people that he is fully on top of things. Nothing in this world escapes his notice. Nine times in our passage, God is referred to as the Lord Almighty. Literally, the Lord of hosts, or Lord of armies, meaning angel armies. It's being made very clear that Israel's God is not running a small-time operation. He is on top of things. That's positive. But the report these messengers bring is not positive. At this point in time, God's people consist of this ragged little group in Jerusalem. What that means is the rest of the world is populated by God's enemies, those who oppress his people. But according to this report, God's enemies are living in peace and quiet. The message of this first night vision is that God sees, but the report is a report of peace and quiet among God's enemies. How is that meant to encourage God's people? How are we meant to be encouraged today when we see God's enemies living the life of Riley? How does it help us to know God knows they're living the life of Riley? Well, apparently the angel who's attending Zechariah is troubled with that same question. He blurts out in verse 12, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? In other words, what does this state of affairs say about your loyalty to your people, Lord? Rest and peace for your enemies means difficulty and struggle for your people. The angel mentions 70 years. That's a reference to the period of the exile. The angel is asking in frustration. It's all very well bringing these people back to Israel. But when are you going to start helping them out? Showing some mercy to them. They have repented But by all appearances, you're still angry with your people and not angry with your enemies. Where's the rest and peace in Jerusalem and the towns of Judah? 
In Psalm 73, the psalmist makes a confession. He says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. All day long I have been afflicted. And surely that's part of what discourages us today. We look around and we think, where is the gain in godliness? Those who live to honor God seem to be worse off than those who don't. We can be tempted to think God is happy with his enemies and angry with his people. Well, at this point, we might expect this exasperated angel to be zapped, eradicated for speaking out of turn. But look at verse 13. So the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. Sometimes people have the silly idea in their heads that the God of the Old Testament is all about wrath. And the God of the New Testament is all about love. But when we actually read the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's quickly obvious that's silly. God did not change his character between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. His character is consistent throughout Scripture. He has always been the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And equally, he is always the God who does not leave the guilty unpunished. That's how the Old Testament describes God. And he's no different in the New Testament. So it shouldn't surprise us that instead of zapping the exasperated angel, God speaks kind and comforting words to him. And the angel passes on those words to Zechariah. Verse 14. Then the angel who was speaking to me said, Proclaim this word. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further. This is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. These verses tell us that God cares. They contain a promise of blessing from the Lord Almighty. God reveals the intensity of his devotion to his people. In verse 14, I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Those are two ways of referring to the same place. And because he's devoted to his people, verse 15, God is very angry with the enemies of his people, the nations that feel secure. So now we know the current peace and quiet of those nations is not a sign of God's favor. It's just the calm 
before his judgment falls. One writer says, these enemies of God are experiencing an artificial and temporary peace. For them, peace and quiet here and now do not mean eternal peace and quiet. Now, it is true that God uses even his enemies to do his will. That's what's behind the second half of verse 15. I was only a little angry, God says, but they went too far with the punishment. Historically, God had used those nations to punish rebellious Israel. Particularly, he used the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Those nations had been God's instruments of punishment. But here God says those nations went too far. Their cruelty and oppression of Israel went beyond what was appropriate. I will hold them accountable for that. And God says, I will also return to Jerusalem with mercy. And there my house will be rebuilt. The work will be completed. And there will be blessing. Verse 17, my towns will again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. The exile had signaled God's rejection of Jerusalem. But now he chooses it again. He will bless it. He will restore it to its central place in his plans. And as the book unfolds, God will have much more to say about those plans. They were partly fulfilled during Jesus' first time on earth. That's why the New Testament Gospels quote from Zechariah so much. But God will also reveal plans in this book that have yet to be fulfilled. Their fulfillment will come when Jesus returns to this earth. All of that is for the weeks to come. The book of Zechariah begins with a challenge for us. A call to examine ourselves. To confess where we have neglected our responsibilities and to turn to God in repentance. And even as we do, God assures us that he sees. He knows all that goes on in this world. And he cares. He cares about the injustice and oppression. He cares about his discouraged, disillusioned people. And he promises to turn to his repentant people with mercy and comfort. We're going to respond to God's word with a song of repentance and then a song of hope. First of all, we have not known you as we ought and then there is a higher throne.